Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Sambhu tassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Sambhu tassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Sambhu tassa aparutha desanamathasataura so this is the last night here uh, for this retreat of just reflecting uh, intuitively, re- recognizing the end, the feeling of an ending. The mind, the mind has a different uh, kind of mood to it than when than a beginning. Just uh, to keep keep noticing, paying attention to the experience of life uh, helps us to develop wisdom in regards to experience. So, just like taking in understanding cessation or death or the ending of things, we don't like to understand death. You don't need to to wait till your your physical body dies, but to begin to notice how things end in your mind or the rising, the ceasing, and the the ending when something has ended. And in, not a, as an analysis, but as an intuition, or the mind em, embracing that that particular uh, experience. And then we can see the the arising, the rebirth, the idea of tomorrow, go home, and this and that, the kind of something to in the 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 immediacy of. What ha- what we have to do next becomes important to us. There's nothing wrong with this, but just noticing this this non-judgmental <coughs> awareness, uh, mindfulness, so that we're actually developing uh, uh, this wisdom in uh, the way things are, rather than than the. Uh, contemplating how things should be, if how we would like them to be. And this uh, is also very helpful in just dealing with emotional uh, problems and, and family problems and uh, relationship problems, because as we begin to just uh, understand the, the feeling of it, you know, the way it is, rather than, than making a problem or thinking it shouldn't be this way. <coughs> Just to, to trust more in that paying attention rather than in taking a position and trying to, and always trying to say, uh, feel you have to do something to make things better or feel guilty when things get worse. The vehicle then is the, is the sila where we we the the 
Panchasila, say for lay people, the five sila is a kind of basis for uh, action and speech that, that we uh, that is say necessary for developing our humanity in the right way. So then that say the, then the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, uh, then the uh, being unselfish in terms of dana of sharing what you have with others. And so that you're doing good, refraining from doing, uh, acting on bad impulses, but you're aware of good and bad and, and uh, the beginnings and endings and the days and nights and happiness and suffering as for what it is. And so that the three characteristics of Anicca Dukkanata are, are ways of, say, contemplating experience. And then this, this we apply to the life, as they, to, to the daily life until we die. It's like, like for me, it's been over 30 years of this kind of practice. <laughs> but it's ongoing because life is forever changing and then, then it becomes easier and one get, becomes less uh, lost in the, in the only, uh, illusoriness of the sangsara. any questions you can or anything you want me to talk about I have a question about the four noble truths and <coughs> livelihood uh, when I was thinking about the way how I earn my living some people earn the living if you are a say clerk or a salesman, then it deals with just be honest and competent. But if I have to take some decision and I belong to a certain body, like uh, a firm, a nation, or an army, then you are going to promote this body. And of course you promote this body and you make your livelihood out of that at the expense of other bodies. But if you are the prime minister, then you must uh, coordinate the interests of your own nation against other nations. If I am a member of a bank, then I compete with other banks. And then when I take decisions, then these decisions are not fair. There is competition all the time. So then sometimes I am in great doubt. And sometimes I have to to earn my living out of competition, then sometimes I went to withdraw. Should I withdraw? Should I do my job individually? Or should I pursue the interests of the body to which I belong? (laughs) 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 
Well, this is uh, something uh, you have to work out all on your own, really. <laughs> you have to, you know, know, trust yourself in, in what you what you what you feel is is appropriate. Because in any anything, there's always a certain. Uh, I mean, some people get too too concerned to the point where they couldn't possibly do anything. You know, because it would involve something you could maybe think is not wholesome. But make your you know make your intention to uh, to to do the what is right and appropriate um, but on the on so many of those th- that kind of situation you just have to you have to trust in your own judgment what right to do and then see what happens and, and, and you know even if you make the wrong decision then you can at least learn from that Like, like, for instance, uh, a friend of mine worked in a was a teacher in a in a public school, boys' school, and he he uh, he didn't particularly agree with the with the way they ran the school, and and it was quite critical of it. And the dilemma whether he should continue in a system he didn't feel was good or protest and leave or or whether his presence in the school was maybe to to go along with not to agree but but because of his he had a you know his, because he could maybe improve the situation for the students with it, uh, and maybe maybe couldn't change the system. Should he stay and work in the best way he could within a system he didn't agree with? And so this is these are things you have to know. You know whether you can, what what you know you figure out for yourself really. Well, I made this experiment in the last month, and I found that my agreement was so strong. I decided to just to obey my chiefs the authorities and never discuss anything. He never bring into light my opposition. It was too radical. And that is an interesting experiment because that brought great relief to me. Because of course, when I compete, then my individual self has the question. And that brought great suffering. <laughs> when I decided just to stick to the authorities and to obey my rules, whatever they are, well, I agree with them or not, then I was a great relief. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, I'm pursuing this experiment. <laughs> 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 like we have to, like in the Vinaya for monks, if we think, uh, there's this rule that if you're, uh, you know, that monks aren't supposed to touch women. And so that, and, and then they have this rule: is so that if your mother falls in the river, <laughs> <laughs> the best you can do is take off your 
your robe and throw it to her and hope she'll grab it and then you can kind of <laughs> pull her in. <laughs> so, so I was, I remember feeling quite repelled by this rule when I was younger and uh, thinking that, you know, what a inhuman and stupid thing that is. Um, because I, I couldn't imagine, you know, just letting your mother drown so you could keep this rule. <laughs> but then I was, uh, <laughs> but then that was a kind of logic that that I realized the Buddha didn't didn't use. That it was more, much more of a develop, you know, like a rule for developing mindfulness rather than. The kind of commandments are imperatives that that uh, and then then you realize that 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 if you want to put it still in the category of rules, then you can say if you touch a woman with lust, then that's a severe offense. But if you uh, and but if you, there's no lust then is, is no offense. So then you think, well, w w probably no lust would arise towards its mother and she's drowning in the river. <laughs> Another one is, they, they, like, they, they used to ask, uh, uh, ask the, uh, you know, like the, for conscientious objectors, the, um, say, what would you do, you know, you have to go to these tribunals to be, find out if you're really a, a pacifist or not. And, and so they, they give you this kind of problem, like if, what would you do if your mother was attacked by a maniac? And, and then you're supposed to, if you say, I would stop him, that means you weren't a pacifist. Uh, but then if you just say, well, I just let him <laughs> kill her, uh, then, then you'd probably be considered a conscientious objector, <laughs> but, it, but at the same time, it was a pretty, uh, you know, you, you feel like it'd be a pretty, uh, pretty uh, terrible thing to do, to just let your mother be at the mercy of a maniac. But then, in... But then this is the, the, you know, it's a totally wrong situation because, you know, it's, it's a contrived situation because none of the factors are there. I mean, you're asking this question, your mother's not there, maniac's not there. <laughs> <laughs> and then you could say, what would you do if your mother attacked the maniac? <laughs> So all you can say is, I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> Fortunately, I've never, that problem will never arise for me. My mother died from old age, not because the maniac attacked her. <laughs> and so it's never, never been the, something I've had to deal with. But and these, are the, these are the kind of ideal, the kind of questions that, but, but then in, in reflective awareness, wisdom, you realize you don't know what you do. You know, even you can speculate about, you know, 
what I would say as a monk if 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 uh, somebody was uh, say a maniac was going to uh, attack uh, Sister Tanasanti, what would you do, uh, Lumpo Sumato? And I could speculate because I well I just pray for her. <laughs> <laughs> I could ask Manabalatilo uh, to do something. <laughs> or, uh, or maybe she could, you know, she's a pretty clever lady. She could probably handle him. Or, <laughs> or there might be all kinds of possibilities because in a situation you don't know. The, you know, the ceiling might fall in or the maniac <laughs> might have a heart attack or whatever. <laughs> it's all, you know, uncertain. So all you know is you don't know. Uh, and then, and then, uh, <coughs> then they say, but you're non-violent if you, then you have, you can't, you couldn't stop this maniac. But then that's not the point. In the situation, you respond, whatever the intuitive, uh, Thing you have to go by intuition in those moments rather than than a, than a set plan. So I trust that if I'm being mindful, then I would know how to respond to that situation in the right way. The point is that the whole thing is to be to be uh, uh, develop this awareness to where then your your ability to respond to a specific or your or extreme situation is is you know it, you you would trust even though it might not be in accord with uh, with all the kind of tradition that you're from you you have to you know you have to trust in the intuitive experience of that particular instance and that's the point of being mindful and training and the rules in the first place is to develop this awareness and this uh, and the spontaneity that comes from that, rather than be someone who's who's you know waiting to fi- figure out what do I do if a, this maniac attacks Sister Tanasanti and what and what in the Vinaya Tripitaka, <laughs> what chapter, what verse? <laughs> But you see, it, it is it, it's like Dhamma is is opening you to to ability to respond and to spontaneity, to wisdom. So it's developing this this the faculties of a human being, not to condition us into being some kind of pacifist or or a kind of non-violent uh, ideal, a kind of non-violent uh, being uh, as an idea or just like being a vegetarian or being becoming something where you you fix yourself in in conventional forms and and kind of institutionalize yourself within it the point of the training is you know for monastic training is not to be become a buddhist monk but to be to develop awareness and be liberated from delusion so you know then you know you can some some people just become Buddhist monks or Buddhist nuns, meaning they 
they don't internalize, they don't develop the meditation, they merely adopt the form, so then that then you become what they call institutionalized through it, through a convention. And that's like, like Krishnamurti used to criticize that a lot. You know, he'd, he'd see all religion as a kind of institutionalization uh, where, where everybody just kind of conforms to a system and they, and they never question it. Mm. But, um, and that's possible to do that. I mean, we do that you know, outside of religion, we become, you know, institutionalized through whatever conventions we, we tend to cling to. We become like that until we awaken the mind and, uh, and develop this wisdom. Then, within the monastic form, within being uh, within the convention of Buddhist monasticism, one then uh, <coughs> responds to life. And exactly what the responses are in, ex- in, or in extreme situations, I don't know. I wait until those things happen. And I trust my, my, in it, my intuition and instincts. So it doesn't bother me. I don't <coughs> what will I do if, uh, if somebody attacks me? You know, what, what will I do? I don't know. I'll f- find out if somebody does. What would be the right thing to do? <coughs> because you more and more trust yourself, you know, in the terms of your, of this, this spacious mind that, in which you, you know, that, that then the then the different influencing factors are are operating together. Where, say, in a, in a in a kind of preconceived. Like when maniac attacking your mother, you're in a some kind of room with a with a group of people who want to, you know, putting uh, putting you to a test to find out if you're a real real conscientious objector. And uh, and then they give you this this thing, and it's you know it's pretty, uh, you know, they're using really uh, fraught terms like mother and maniac. These are highly charged perceptions. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, not a fair, it's not a fair way of doing it.
strong thing that recurs again and again, um, particularly with Europeans. It, it seems to be something, and it will obviously recur again in this situation, will occur, uh, and of course does occur, vis-à-vis -vis Buddhism. And I wondered how that would fit in with the kind of Thai tradition, or the Theravada tradition. Is that <coughs> Well, Thailand is, is, is just in a, you know, bec it's now a very kind of modern country that, that uh, has become very kind of, you know, much more sophisticated than, than, that than it was, say, 30 years ago when I first went there. So, but it is a, a homogeneous culture. It's, you know, it's 95% Thai Theravada Buddhists. So you, you got you know, very few countries have such a have such homogeneity as, as Thailand. You know, so f the minorities are minimal, very small, in either racial or or religious. And so, and then uh, the culture is is very uh, very strong culture identity. So. It has a very kind of strength, strong uh, social base and and cultural base as that holds the whole country together quite well. With a king who's a Buddhist and and with a sangha, so that it operates in um, in a way that is uh, is from a from a from a very strong cultural. Kind of y unity that's there, and the and the kind of assumptions you can make from such a cultural situation, and then now now the influence of the West, education has become secular rather than it used to be. Education was was usually co connected to the to the monasteries, but now it's it's secular, and and uh, many people are very Westernized and so forth. So the influence is a lot of changes. But as it changes now, it becomes more and more westernized. The, the uh, lay people, there's more and more of an interest in lay people practicing meditation. Uh, so it's interesting uh, to see uh, the change in just my, the, the years that I've been associated, uh, 30 years that I've been associated with Thailand, that it, it, uh, it used to be that, that the lay people thought that even the lay people felt they couldn't, they didn't have any right to practice meditation. They were there to just give dana and, and then to keep the sila. So dana sila was, was more for lay people and pawana was for the monk. And that was a general feeling, say, 30 years ago. And Ajahn Chah, even 20 years ago, uh, was a bit, you know, pessimistic about Thailand because he felt the lay people were not interested in meditation and, uh, and he's quite critical of it. Because he, he tried to introduce meditation and he was quite successful, like in Uborn in the Northeast. He, Getting people, lay people, villagers, and that to develop meditation, but that was rare. That wasn't the usual thing. But now, it's it's uh, you can't say that. There's meditation centers, 
lay, there's lay teachers, there are women meditation teachers, there are, uh, when I go to Thailand, I'm always, get so many invitations to teach meditation, uh, to, and, it, and it's very much middle class, too. You get the, um, the kind of uh, civil servant class, doctors, nurses, teachers, um, that group in Bangkok, you get you know, a lot of, of the, and even the, the uh, wealthy people are into meditation. Because the thing, you see, with the, the good fortune of that country is that the king of Thailand is a very virtuous man. In him, you know, as a, as a king, he's a very good king and a very moral and virtuous example, and, and he meditates. So, so people tend to emulate the king, and so because of his uh, <coughs> good example, then 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 the, and he, then he would go to these forest monks in the northeast, oftentimes for instruction and for guidance, and so that then the people would tend to notice that, and the and these uh, forest monasteries have become quite popular places to go practice meditation and then so it's uh, it has uh, that, that kind of that there's a growing uh, demand and interest among uh, people or uh, lay people to develop meditation now, now they have uh, like I when I was in Bangkok last February I was invited to a to a um, place this this um, man that has a of uh, a, a, a business built this uh, skyscraper, this very tall, high-rise, modern building in Bangkok, where there's, there's hundreds of them now. But and then he he has a meditation room on the top floor for the employees, and he gives his employees time to give them special paid holidays to go and practice meditation at meditation centers. And every month they invite a monk to give a talk to the employees. I was invited. I gave a talk to the... They all had a kind of lively discussion, conversation. This is in, in just a, a business complex in Bangkok. And, uh, I mean, one hears oftentimes the more sordid news about Bangkok, but there's also, <laughs> also some good things going on. And the, the, uh, the, uh, this is also, there's like youth organizations now, Buddhist youth organizations that are quite active. And in Malaysia also, it's, it's interesting to see what's happened in Malaysia. Like when I, I lived in uh, Malaysia in 1964 and 65, and then, um, and I was in uh, Sabah in the North Borneo, in the East East Malaysia, and they in a Chinese taught in a Chinese school, and and then uh, and I said I was a Buddhist, but nobody in the Chinese community knew anything about Buddhism, even though they all said they were Buddhist, and. Uh, <laughs> I went to the to the capital city, and uh, which is now called Kota Kinabalu, and 
and uh, n n nobody, I couldn't find anybody that, that they, they were, all the Chinese claimed to be Buddhist, but they actually didn't know anything about it. And so then uh, I went to Kuala Lumpur, and, and then there was this uh, Sri Lankan monk, uh, Sri Damananda, who's done a lot of good work, and the Theravada monk established a kind of center in Kuala Lumpur. And he's, uh, through his skill, he's, he's really opened up uh, Theravada Buddhism. And in the past 20 years or so, there's been an enormous interest in uh, Theravada Buddhism among the Chinese in Malaysia. And uh, with uh, publishing books, meditation retreats, meditation centers uh, and and, uh, and and it's and it's coming from the young young generation of Malaysians who are of Chinese descent uh, but have, have don't want the old kind of uh, old kind of Chinese Buddhism that their parents believed in but want this they want more meditation something more that, that they can I, you know, feels more practical and useful to them than the the uh, than the old form, which their parents tended to be more based on on uh, kind of mixtures of Taoism and Confucianism and Buddhism. But it's interesting to see this this uh, this movement, and in Singapore also the same. So in in. In Buddhist countries, the Buddhists are sometimes like like uh, rediscovering their religion. It's like anything, religion gets when it gets established, it tends to oftentimes <coughs> become more of a kind of cultural convention for everyone. And one feels like in Thailand, one feels definitely now there's more, uh, you know interest in the in the practice of it more than than there was say 30 years ago here in uh, England the the uh, where because here in England the Buddhism is is from all directions it's uh, there's no dominant form of Buddhism in here in Britain so I mean there's there's, you know, every every kind of Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> so like you can just take your choice, whatever you feel like, you can go that way. Uh, but because there's no dominant group, then uh, and then the the monastic sangha, this is you know is still relatively a new thing. And whether that really takes root or not, who knows. <laughs> a friend of mine who visited Thailand recently uh, told me that uh, the way he perceived the tradition of the lay community was that they could go into uh, a temple for a month or two months or three months and actually put on robes and, and, and practice. And the way he understood it, in, in some cases it was almost to atone for certain things they'd done or bad bad karma or to uh, gain merit some way. Is this <coughs> did he understand that right? 
Well, there's different approaches. Like, like there's a, a kind of cultural attitude towards Buddhism, that that would be more of the cultural attitude. But then there's also, in Thailand, a, a, some monks that have really have had a great impact on the society. And they're, they're really trying to awaken the Thai Buddhists to the pure form of Buddhism. So you have like Ajahn Chah or Buddha Dasa was another one. Very, you know, very uh, direct. And he was and they were very clear about what is, Bud- what is the real Dhamma and what is Thai culture and what is superstition. And, and Buddha Dasa was a, a brilliant kind of monk that was very well educated and wrote a lot of books. So, and uh, had a great great influence among the intelligentsia. And so he, uh, he was very, he was brilliant. He was very clear, you know, pointing out to Thai people what is the Buddhist teaching, what is the Thai culture, what is the superstition. And uh, so that, that in Thailand you do have very, you have a lot of clarity about Buddhism. In some, you know, when you really look, uh, you, you get like that kind of Buddhism that we were taught through Ajahn Chah. It's a really pure form. You know, it's very direct, uncluttered with with things, and very practical. And so, so that was, uh, you know, that was uh, that's one reason why Western people gravitated to that because it, because of it, it was a real clear. Uh, uncluttered uh, style that Ajahn Chah used. And he was also very, uh, very clear, you know, trying to, educating the Thai so that they really knew what, what is just superstition from uh, the old animistic beliefs or from Brahmanistic influences or from, or, ju- or just, uh, you know, Superstition that is gathered around Buddhism, and what is the the real practice? Uh, Ajahn Chah was really, uh, you know, he's pretty brutal in in the way he, you know, he could, he'd really, you know, people come and want all kinds of magical charms, and he just, you know, really, you know, let them have it. You know, wouldn't <laughs> put up with it, and he'd go along with any of their stuff, and. Uh, I mean, he did it quite skillfully. He wasn't, you know, rude, but but he uh, he was very clear. And and it's interesting to see how much respect he had, even though he's been dead for five years. And Buddha Dasa has died also. Yet the uh, the respect the, those two monks have, even now, you go in bookshops in Bangkok, and they've got books and tapes and videos and everything of the of Ajahn Chah, of Buddha Dasa. That people really, really like, so that that it it is uh, um, you know the idea is that a, a man should ordain before they get married, you know. So, that, but a temporary ordination. So, so in Thailand they're pretty easy about ordaining people, monks. And 
this is, and it becomes more of a custom. And so, but then Tanjokun Panyananda, the monk that was here just a couple of weeks ago, he he does he try he tried to upgrade this custom of temporary ordination in his own monastery, so that he tries to provide a kind of training program for for people who have temporary ordination so that they get good training in, in the academic side, in the practice side, rather than just ordaining and kind of putting in time, wearing a robe for a few weeks and then disrobing, you know, just to say you've been a monk, which some of them do. He, uh, this Tanjokun Panyananda would try to set up a something that would be that would be more educative and, and useful and, and so that they wouldn't just be be going through the motions. Also, do you know the background of a, of a successful drug rehabilitation center that was supposedly some uh, outside of uh, Bangkok that uh, was run by a, uh, mm. a Buddhist monk? And drug re- rehab programs in the States have been not very successful. They have a high rate of recidivism. And I just wondered, this, supposedly this was a very, very successful program. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's famous. I met somebody from Australia who, who takes people from, Aus- drug addicts from Australia to Thailand to, to go through their program. I mean, it, it was started by a Buddhist monk, and uh, it's pretty, uh, I've, saw, I've seen videos of it, it's pretty, uh, he uses some kind of uh, potions and that, and Makes them vomit and <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to work. He's had good a good but but also with he he also being a monk and also working with Thai Buddhists, so there's a level of of faith there too. You know, that that uh that has a that has quite a has an important influence on, the, you know, encouraging people to get t- to get get off drugs. And there's also in uh, in, in uh, Lokbury there's this AIDS hospice, which is uh, run by a monk, Pra Alongo, and he's he's famous for setting up this uh, this. Uh, in his monastery, take care of of uh, people who are dying of AIDS. So he's he's also set a very good example. And then uh, there's in Chiang Mai, which has an incredibly high rate of AIDS, HIV positive. The there's a man that uh, Noy Noy Thompson's son runs a program for for people there uh, to try to um, and and he says he he really tries to get monks involved because once the bhikkhu monks are involved in the AIDS program then the lay people tend to follow that and and develop more kind of useful positive ways of helping people with AIDS so I was I was in uh, in Chiang Mai last January and 
Noy's son, Ben, he brought about uh, 16 women to see me. I was at this meditation center. 16 women who uh, have AIDS. And they, they all got it from their husbands. Uh, they're village, village girls, village women. They all have children. And their husbands have died. And, and, and so, so these women now are in that they're in that level where they they now can't do very much work, you know. So, but they, so I was, I, I he brought them to see me, and I tried to give them some meditation instructions, and uh, and they were, um, and he's setting up programs where they can do work like make. Um, silk flowers or handicrafts and ways of that they can support themselves because they like to be independent. They don't want to be, you know, just on the welfare system yet. So that they, they, uh, and then he tries to, oftentimes they get isolated, uh, you know, women like that in a village and, and they get depressed. So he tries to set up these kind of networks where they meet and discuss their problems. So it's a lot of, and he, and he's also, says when if monks if we can get monks involved in it, it also then the thing really takes off because then the the influence of the monks on the Thai people is very strong and then they they if they when the monks do that then the the uh, then the lay people tend to really respond wholeheartedly to to like doing good works helping the people like that. It's quite inspiring to see, see it, but it's it's really sad to see so many, uh, so much, uh, deep, so many depressing things. You know, the people just like these women. They were, they were all, uh, you know, very kind of ordinary village type women who. Uh, who uh, had caught the disease from their husband, and then the husband died, so they had anger and and confused a lot of emotions, confused emotions of love and hate and anger and resentment, and and also incredible concern about their children. What's going to happen when they when they die? Because they they probably live, they expect two more years, and then they they die. So then, trying to set up ways of of helping uh, uh, to take care of their children. And the mother, the mother and father, have both died. Should we invite them here? <laughs> 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 but I, I believe from 
my reading that in the Buddhist time there was um, this uh, the, the practice was for lay people to support um, Right, but here, like, uh, one does have so many welfare, so much welfare uh, already, you know, there's, uh, within the, the, the social structure, the, uh, I've, I've been invited, I've been, uh, to go to some of these, uh, Shelters for the homeless in London. Somebody I know has offered to take me to see, meet them, and a lot of young, like young <coughs> people, who uh, live out on the streets. I'm quite interested in seeing it because uh, I don't really. Cause we live in here in this kind of ivory tower. I don't. I don't see the see that the other side so much. Just just to sort of change tack a bit, there's a there's a natural law party which I I believe is is natural law is the um, is the uh, Dharma. Uh, the party is party of uh, Mahesh Yogi and their their platform in the recent general election was to uh, make yogic flying available to all to <laughs> 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 making society much more um, efficient and happy and uh, I don't know uh, oddly enough the, the candidate in Hemel Hempstead is um, a parish <laughs> councillor in Great Gadsden I wondered if she'd ever come up to see you uh, that, that, um, Would she fly up or what?
like here in, in the Western Europe, you feel there's an incredible amount of negativity in the population. You know, there's a, there's a lot of depression, a lot of despair, uh, and uh, so that the, the a lot of cynicism uh, and uh, fear, things like that, and it's so that you this negativity is. Uh, you know, is uh, something that that uh, influences uh, the decisions made by governments and, and for both political and economic reasons. And once you start uh, developing a mind where where you get out of those neg that negative position, then there is more possibilities, more options, more hope for using wisdom and developing <coughs> more skillful ways of running uh, a society then rather than just rev you know having a revolution and like they used to you know th which is a very negative thing you know to have a revolution and kill off the old ones and put in new ones uh, but uh, the Mahashyogi style and is very good seems to be and then all forms of meditative spiritual development and meditation you know is you know is supporting a, a more skillful uh, human development because we really need to you can see just like on this retreat if you if you uh, You know how how easy it is to sink into negativity or into uh, uh, this the, the wandering mind, and and then you, you you know you're becoming aware more of the how to use an intuitive approach or how do you develop wisdom, and so this is this is you're the avant-garde really. <laughs> This is the this is the the potential the possibility you know where where we we begin to where we can see it for ourselves as ra rather than than just adopting a a religious some religious teaching and and trying to convert everybody into into a new religious form actually what you know the to me that would be that would not solve the problem, but they, um, because then you get into, you're, you're emphasizing the conventional approach too much, where, like what you've been doing the past two weeks, is really working with the mind, where you're beginning to understand how the mind works, and why, where, it, where you get deluded, and how things arise, and, and how to sustain attention, how to find that place of attention and how to sustain that attention, how to let go of the causes of suffering and so forth. That's very, you know, it's very, uh, it, there, there's hope for humanity when you, when you, when you put it, when you realize the potential that's, that's in all of us. I'm still referring to the right argument of the social action. 
more with practice. Samsara seems to get worse. You know, samsara doesn't get better, it seems to get worse. The more you practice, well, in my time. Okay. I'm famous for my humility. <laughs> and you've got people who are sort of very socially active groups. And if you're living like you say, you, you say you go to a retreat and you're the other guy. And they say, well, this is just escapist enlightenment stuff. You should be out there on the barricades. And then, on the other hand, you've got a sort of a friend, uh, a woman said to me once, you Buddhists, all you'll ever do is talk about suffering and meditate. So, really, very difficult position to be in because you get attacked by both sides when you practice take the practice. But do you think it's really ever going to be a situation where you can get samsara right? Well, well samsara, no, samsara is never going to be right. Because <laughs> 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 it's based on delusion, but but. Uh, and that's the thing, is that you just, you know, like, social action can be, you know, just like rearranging the furniture all the time, you know. It just looks better when you move something, or you feel you've done something. And and even though things, we can make things better that way, but they still, you know, they change and you can't sustain it. Where, where we do have the idea sometimes that once, you know, the old system, once you get the right political system in and everything, then everything's going to really blossom and go ahead and and uh, the idea of, you know, it's just going to keep getting better and better. But but it doesn't work like that. And uh, I mean, like, like when I look at, you know, the, well, for, you know, when I was a youth of the 50s, we looked, 1950s, we looked, you know, we thought, you know, by this time, maybe all that we, you know, like, I remember back in the 1950s, we thought by 1997, they would, uh, the medical profession, modern science, would have a, a cure for all diseases. And then it wouldn't be, all these diseases would be no longer a problem. And so look at us, you know, we've got more diseases now and things, <laughs> new, uh, new, new kinds of diseases that didn't exist in 1950. And uh, <laughs> and then you know we thought you know we thought once we get rid of communism, <laughs> we got rid of communism. <laughs> and one, you know, one if you could get everybody and become democratic, and everybody's now saying that they're, they're democratic and in uh, a, in a free market style and so forth, but it, it's endless. You know, no matter what, it doesn't, you know, some things get better and worse and it changes. But generally speaking, the, the problem isn't really with, the, with that side of life, but with the human mind. And uh, as long as we, we don't get to the root of it, then this is the root here. I can... I can do something about this, you know, I, I have the possibility of working from here. I can't make you do it, I can encourage you in that, it, but I can't, you know, I can't force anyone to, to meditate. 
And if I did, they, you know, it would be counterproductive. You know, hold a gun to their head, they meditate. That's <laughs> 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 not what you want. <laughs> but at least you know, at least you know, you c- you can do it. I, I can do it. I'm willing to try. And then that then that encourages others to to take on that responsibility. So you're you're working in a level that. That is like grassroots, really, where you, you, you're in, but it has to come from your own example rather than from imposing an idea of meditation on a lot of people. Like that's where, where you know, the, say morality or or any kind of high-minded teaching, uh, if if forced on people, it, beca- it becomes uh, a tyranny. You know, so you're, you're realizing to develop human beings, you can't, when you force them to be good through uh, making them frightened of being bad and punishing them when they're bad and rewarding them for being good, then you get a level of obedience up, you know, but it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't get integrity, you don't get enlightenment, you don't get wisdom through that. It's through through actually this encouraging and and uh, this awakening process and and uh, getting people to to know their their potential to realize their own potential their own goodness but then that then they then it's coming from the the ver- their very from their from their heart so that then that is a much more trustworthy situation than than just rewarding people for being good and punishing them when they're bad. And these, like all these uh, good causes, I mean, I'm quite, you know, I appreciate that. People working for the different peace movements and social causes, not to, to deny the goodness of it. But you know darn well, within a lot of those movements, people don't get along with each other. (laughs) Even on the level of where, you know, two high-minded people working for the welfare of the world can, can, uh, you know, not be able to live with each other, hate each other. Like the Green Party in England, it destroyed itself. and they're all good people with, but they couldn't, but that's where idealism, you see, it, it, if you're just trapped in an idealistic view, then it's endless. Who's, 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 you know, whose ideal are you going to use? And the means to that ideal. So that's why, like in the Sangha, where you're based, you're, your your agreement your social agreement is based on morality so that rather than on agreeing on on ideas and thoughts and all that we 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 agree on how to relive with each other on the on a moral plane and that way at least we we can you know we can live with each other because we're not we're not going to uh, lie or cheat or kill or or exploit each other. Uh, that's, 
uh, on, the, on the level of action and speech. And then, uh, so, so that, um, that's what really is needed now internationally, is a, is a moral, uh, moral agreement. Like, I think they, they should, you know, outlaw war. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just, bana uh, bata, the first precept, you know. So, you know, that would, you know, and, and human beings, we can agree, we can, you know, we can agree to that. And then that, that is, whether, I mean, and, and then our, that, that sets a standard for, for, uh, uh, for behavior, and even though you you know it, it's wars will probably still happen. At least you've, you you you're establishing a moral standard that internationally you you you're, you can you can point to rather than than just power struggling and that goes on now in this power struggling and politicking and and uh, corrupt ways of, you know, uh, handling a situation to get the power of it uh, in, a, in a country. Because the, the, the determined morality has, you know, is we all have violent tendencies and we all have, you know, basic instincts and we have you know, we're all human beings were quite capable of being demonic or angelic. You know, we have a, quite a wide range of behavior possible for us, uh, from the most horrendous kind of atrocity and demonic behavior to to enlightenment. And then morality at least provides uh, um, the, a common. I mean common ground for what is, you know, that that encourages us to rise up to that moral, to take that moral responsibility. And you can see in the society, like, like in, uh, just noticing, like in third world countries, and or even here in, in Britain, where you have a lot of unemployment. If you like with with man and that, if you don't channel male energy towards something good or something noble or virtuous, then male energy easily becomes destructive. So you get gangs of boys, and they they usually quite destructive because uh, with with men you need to you need they need to have something higher than than just strength and power. Uh, they need to have some kind of noble goal for their lives. Uh, otherwise we, we tend to we tend to uh, get caught into just like brutality or or power. You know, we love power and we love when uh, we can easily become violent and uh, and destructive being. But if you, but it, so a society that just leaves boys to run wild on the streets, what are you going to get? You're going to get, you know, criminals and 
drug addicts and destructive people because you're not you're not taking that uh, that energy and guiding it towards something that that for the benefit of the individual as well as the society. You probably know more about that than oh, I do. I've never taught meditation. Um, on the family camp, there's all kinds of different things that happen with children. And uh, um, I think with meditation, it's, 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 it's something, um, like what Paul was saying, it's, it's something that people have to want to do themselves. So with children, it has to be um, set up so that it's actually their, their interest rather than the imposition of a Children respond to very concrete things, so you can teach them about um, morality and goodness, you can teach them about being kind, about sharing, you can teach them about chanting and vowing, things like that. And then with meditation, you know, you can do, you know, a little bit more concrete things, like, you know, what are your toes feel like? And you can do that with very little children, you know, can you imagine a smile on the bottom of your toes, you know, travel a smile all the way through you. <laughs> so, you know, little, little ones, three years old, four years old, can do that for a little while. And um, the children, like, they love that kind of thing. They really enjoy it. And I ask this because often if there's a problem with us, uh, behavior, the, the sooner you start looking at where it might begin, the better. You know, if all the children had some introduction to morality and but that, that example with children happens mostly because they're taught to be the example of their parents. So you can, you can shovel it down their throat as much as you like. <laughs> it's the people around them who are actually living with their sense of goodness themselves. And if I talk about amravati, 
and they'll be just very interested in knowing all about it. And then let's meditate also. <laughs> <laughs>